The scientific revolution starts now. And I, I sent a message, I don't know if it ever got through, but I have a patient at the top of the hour, so I'm going to have to stop just a few minutes before then. So. Oh, interesting. So we normally run these uh, for like three hours. Oh, oh, I can't possibly do that. Okay. You didn't? No, no, I can't. Uh, you know, I can do 55 minutes is about what I can do. So I'm sorry. It's, it's interesting because people have always said so, and they've always... Uh, they turn around at three hours and they're amazed at what a good time they've had. But I, I understand if you have a patient that's coming, mm-hmm. there's not really much that we can do about that. And do you I, want to try to reschedule? I mean, so, okay, the bread and butter of this show is that it is these long conversations and an hour is rarely enough time for us to be able to dig deep because it's not, we're not going to pepper you with questions. We want to hear stories. We want it to be very casual, something that we can really sink into. Yeah, we well, like to, we like to tie it into the other conversations we've had on the show too, and and make a web. Yeah, yeah. L- let me say too, and I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, I really can only manage an hour. I'm I'm in recovery from major surgeries and uh, l- limitation of my energy too. So I think an hour is about the most I could manage in any case. So you you, you didn't specify, or if you did, I didn't grab it when you first contacted me that you. Bo- want to speak that longer i would have simply said I, can, I can't do it so i see well then if that's the limitation that's the limitation we work with what we got this is this is actually a, a fascinating difference between me and shiloh which i'm sure has deep analytical significance which is that when things happen and they are not according to plan i'm kind of like you know what let's figure it out we'll go we'll make it work and i feel like shiloh tends to be much more attached to the plan as it was laid down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Which suggests a difference between a J function and a P function in typology. Tell you us, know? tell so we're recording. We're just, let's just, let's just go. Tell us the difference between a J function and a P function. Well, if a person's, um, this is from the Myers-Briggs, of course, if a person's J function is the stronger of the two, they prefer closure, predictability, control, outcome. And the P function or perceiving function has to do with um, going with the flow, often open-ended, and, you know, manana. We'll deal with that tomorrow. (laughs) Spread out along the spectrum there, you see. And uh, so what you just described is probably a result of certain personality structure differences. So it's just a thought. How, How immutable are these? Well, I think it's... I think it's in, in inherent. Um, it's in our, our biology. However, um, we can modify these things, particularly when we're aware of them. Um, so, you know, typically in the Myers-Briggs, there are four initials there, like an INTJ, an introverted, intuitive, thinking, judgment type. That's my typology, INTJ. Um, and... You know, my my daughter's totally opposite. She's the extrovert, sensate, um, and she's a J, although she is a J too. And uh, so it's it's uh, it, how we process information. There's no right or wrong. It's how we process information, and we process differently. How and, do these compare to the 
the ocean characteristics, you know, the openness and extroversion, conscientiousness, nice. neuroticism. Uh, the big five personality traits, I guess, is how I've always heard them described. Yeah, these these are more functions for processing data. Hmm. If data hits us, how do we internalize it and process it? That's the difference. That's why two people can have entirely different experiences of the same phenomenon because they've internalized it differently. Hmm. And the uh, typologies has its strength in terms of its adaptation to external world realities, and each has its liability. So, there, again, there's no right or wrong. Is typology used in Jungian psychoanalysis? To a degree, yes. I mean, it's not central, but it's certainly there. And Jung was defining these uh, basic principles back in the 1920s. So it's, it's 100 years old and, you know, it tends to hold up. So I, I wrote to you initially because I really wanted to talk about the impact of having lost uh, something that you talk about in, in your work, uh, Living Between Worlds. Is it Living Between Worlds is the name of the book? Yeah, uh, you, t you talk about this transformation that happened in modern society where we don't have these gods of antiquity to identify our different emotional stations and our subsets and personalities with. And instead we have Google and we have nationalism and hedonism and narcissism and materialism. And I, th I think it's been a few years since this book came out and I'm curious if you see this persisting or developing or where the future is headed. Are we going to come back to these gods? Are we going to come back to a more Jungian way of looking at our inner landscapes? Or are we just going to go off the cliff with the uh, isms? Well, you, you have an ism when you don't have a felt connection to what you've called the gods. And... <clears throat> as we're using the phrase gods here, we're not making a metaphysical or theological statement. We're, right. we're talking about how people have personified their encounter with the mysteries of life. And obviously they personified it by making the gods very much like us. You know, Xenophanes in the ancient world said, if lions and horses could draw, they, the gods they would depict on their canvases would look like lions and horses. So when we look into the gods of the antiquity, we, we also are seeing a kind of Rorschach of people's own psychological makeup at the time. And as those um, powers uh, have waned in their capacity to link people to the mysteries, they've been replaced in the modern world by secular alternatives, such as you mentioned, materialism, hedonism, narcissism, etc., nationalism which we may have noticed are not working too well for us because people feel very much adrift. Just over the weekend, I saw a survey that suggested that now 30% of the American public are considered nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That is to say, practice no official religious preferences, do not go to houses of worship. And those who do have fallen to 43%. And it's a tendency that's tr continuing. So, we can see within the near future, the people who are not affiliated with traditional religious institutions probably exceeding those who are, which is a major paradigm shift, as you can imagine. Well, it's a paradigm shift that also has beneath it the idea that we are no longer the humans that we once were. 
where the old gods do not apply to us anymore because the people who wrote those books, you know, 6,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, however long ago, are no longer like us. And so we can abandon the histories because we have somehow shifted our nature. But I'm not sure. Well, it's almost like we think they were super, we treat them like they were superstitious dum-dums as opposed to deeply metaphorical people. I think that's partially true, but I also think that in addition to that, we treat ourselves as having evolved away from that. Because we're no longer superstitious dum-dums. Yeah, 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 I would agree with that. Well, I, w I would respectfully disagree with whomever that um, we ha human nature hasn't changed very much. Technology has changed. Our social structures and some of our social values have changed. But by and large, we're still the same people we were two, three, four thousand years ago. And the proof is when we read the scriptures, when we read the ancient Greek tragedies and other traditional sources, we, we see human nature very much the same as ours. Wearing different clothing in different contexts, obviously, but there is a certain constancy to our capacity for self-delusion, for example, for inflation, for believing that we know enough to know enough to make proper decisions and then getting caught up in the consequences of choices because in truth you know there were many other factors than we than we believed at the time that were at play in any given situation and so is this something to be cured of or is this just the state in which we exist yeah are we going off a cliff or is is there hope well this is this is an evolutionary process i i think and the question of meaning has come up for moderns in a different way. And if I don't find it through the traditional linkages, where am I going to find it? And that's why, as I said, we've substituted isms such as materialism, that I can fill the spiritual emptiness within me by purchasing new and shiny objects. Well, if that works, we would all know it by now. So consumerism is, is, in a certain way, how people are seeking to link themselves or connect themselves to something that is numinous. Numinosity, as you probably know, is, is from a, an ancient word that means uh, something summons you, something touches you, something moves you, though you may not understand that you've been moved at the time. And it, it beckons you, it summons you. And you're, you're, you're touched by it in a certain way. So let's just say if each of us walked into an, an art museum, you might be moved by one painting indifferent to the next one and vice versa. Which of you is right? Hey guys, hope you're enjoying our episode today. If you're thinking, how can I help make this project even better? Well, come on over to patreon.com and join our inner crew. We get together once a week and hash out all of the details of this show, talk to people about what's interesting in the world of science and ideas, and you can get involved in that for just a couple dollars a month. If you don't have any money right now, leave a comment, share it with one of your friends, share it with one of your family members, somebody who you think would enjoy these kind of discussions. And also, maybe you have some skills that you could contribute to this project. You know, we really could use volunteers around here if you are good at video editing graphic design animation anything please reach out to us and we can get a conversation going about how you can get involved otherwise back to the conversation with jim hollis well we would say there's no right or wrong here there's a difference of taste but there's a difference of numinosity that is to say something inside of you has been touched by a particular painting and the other person's been touched in a different way so the question is, where do we find numinosity today? I once had a client many, many years ago who bought multiple automobiles every year. 
knowing that they would prove to be disappointing. But for him, as a child, growing up in an impoverished uh, neighborhood, a, a new car driving down the street was not only a shiny and numinous object, it was also freedom. And so uh, as soon as the windshield wiper fluid was uh, exhausted, as he said, it was time for a new car. And uh, he would drive off and his sense of satisfaction would last a day or two. And then it would be time to shop for a new car. Now, that's actually, in a peculiar way, a portrait of hell. Because that's a person who's caught in a kind of addictive cycle and has no understanding as to how to break out of it. As a client said to me once from an AA group, um, the saying of his colleagues was, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. Mm. I thought, how illustrative that is for all of us. We get locked into behavioral patterns and habits, and we know it's not working for us, but we've learned to do it very well. And it's very hard to change that and, and move in different directions, as we all know. Yeah, and it strikes me that oftentimes the solution to addiction is presented as abstinence, which I think is possibly a terrible mistake, because when somebody has this addictive personality, when, when they find themselves addicted to buying cars or drinking too much or whatever it is, mm -hmm. if you take out the drinking or the cars, it will often get replaced with something else. And, and there might be a case to be made, well, okay, they're addicted to, I don't know, dancing now or something, <laughs> like whatever it is. But the, you still haven't really reached into what was missing in the first place or what, why it is that they have this, this compulsion. And I think it is in some sense being detached from the ability to identify with these these gods, with these driving, what did you call them? Uh, these inner forces, these... Uh, numinous forces. Numinous forces, yeah. No, that's absolutely correct. And our, our search for the numinous shows up in our attraction to these new and shiny objects. Um, and, and so it has a certain delusory ca ca characteristic. It's shiny, it's attractive, it says, purchase me. And when we do, we, we find its numinosity lasts for a certain length of time. It's like people falling in and out of love. You know, when you're a sophomore in high school, you can be in and out of love several times a week, you know, and the whole sort of possibility of connecting with that other person is full of numinous possibilities until they prove to be ordinary human beings like us. And therefore that need passes on to someone else. Another way of looking at addictions is that they are anxiety, reflexive anxiety management systems. I would venture to say we all have addictive patterns in that each of us have, when pressured, certain reflexive responses that are designed to manage that anxiety as best we can. Now, of course, that tends to fail over time and can only be partially successful at best. Hence the need for the repetition, and that's the addictive hook. People, people keep going back to the well because there's a momentary relief of whatever that distress is within, but uh, it only builds again, and therefore the behavior has to continue, which is what tends to reinforce it and, and to um, essentially institutionalize it inside of each of us. So I would venture to say all of us have addictive patterns. It's just a question of discerning where in one's life they show up. Can understanding these individual spirits, these numinous forces, can that actually 
be a salve to that anxiety? How, how does that work out functionally? Obviously, it seems to have worked out for our ancestors by varying degrees uh, in a way that we're saying is absent today. If we were to look at our personalities this way and look at our anxieties and our fears and the things that motivate us perhaps negatively, would that be a potential remedy for this addictive nature that we all suffer from by degrees? Yes, potentially, because in effect, if you can face what you fear and and take it on, so to speak, you can re- sort of remove its um, power in your life. Um, the only way through fear is through it, ultimately. Uh, I don't mean to be too literalistic here. If you're afraid of heights, it doesn't mean you take up skydiving. But but you need to recognize what the fear of heights can represent for you or or what the fear of speaking in public might represent and and so forth. In each case, what we'd really have to get at is what's the core fear underneath this? What is it that you're defending against? And if you can approach it without that defense, surprise, surprise, it's not going to blow you away. It often threatens to. But then you realize you have the resourcefulness, the resilience of the adult that allows you to go through these these experiences. It may not be pleasant, but it, it is something that doesn't have to own you in the way in which it has in the past. So it's almost like the ancestors put faces on these forces in order to handle them in a social way, right? Because if you have a religion that's devoted to balancing these forces against one another, and it actually makes them into personalities and these entities that can be thought of and imagined, right? Like a huge part of the human imagination is visualization. And it's very hard for us to look at these squishy feelings without hanging some sort of image on them. And I, I feel like that's what the ancestors really nailed. And they, they seem to have developed an entire system, This their theology, their pantheons revolved around balancing these forces against one another, right? I, I, I just, I, I don't know enough about it, but I imagine that if you had some infliction, some uh, what we would call disorder today or something, right? You would go to some ancient uh, priest or you would go to some temple, let's say in ancient Greece, and they would have some sort of representative mythology that they would dramatize for you that would help you see the root cause of that in a way that was manageable. Do you have any insight into that? Certainly, yes. Um, in many ways, what you're describing is the shamanic tradition that healers in the ancient world believe that what we call mental suffering uh, was because some god had been neglected or offended in some way. And so the healer or shamanic figure's role was to enter imaginatively into that person's space, discern what values or, or what energies had been violated or neglected, and try to figure out some kind of negotiation with, with that deity um, to, to allow the restoration of that part of their soul back to them. And, and, and Jung said, this is no different than depth analysis, that, that we know a, a part of the psyche can be captivated by some part of our history. And if we can discern that and pursue that, we can f- release that energy. Um, I did my thesis in Zurich many years ago when I was in training, 
based on one paragraph that I had read in Jung that I found uh, absolutely fascinating. He asked the question that doesn't occur to many people. He said, where did the gods go when they left Olympus? You know, where's Zeus? Where's Aphrodite? Where's Hermes, et cetera, et cetera. Where are they today? And he said they left the Mount Olympus and entered the soul of the modern. And he said, now they've become disorders, as you said, neuroses, mm. like addictions and, and so forth. And so today, um, while the, the ancients had a personified universe to appeal to, ours tend to be <laughs> depersonalized. You know, we, we get CAT scans, we get x-rays, we, we get prescriptions of various kinds. And you know, I'm, I'm certainly grateful for that. I know I'm alive because of them. But at the same time, we realize we've lived in a universe that's now depopulated, so to speak. It's now, in a certain way, a, a kind of sterile universe. And of course, our relationship to, to nature and our environmental crisis is another example of that. Rather than seeing us as part of nature, we've adopted the position that nature is subservient to us and therefore to service here. And we can see what kind of uh, peril that has brought us to here. So the, the, the book Tracking the Gods, which is one of my early books, was really a following that theme, saying, where are the gods today and how do we, we look at these things? Well, they've been placed into the modern, as you said, and cast as disorders, but they've also been atomized, where when you have a god that lives on a mountain that personifies all of the traits that you have that make you less than perfect and someone who does bad things and someone who should work to fix themselves, then you're part of this larger continuum of human nature of human suffering, of the constant fight to erase the past. You're part of the cosmic, some cosmic plan, right? There's, yeah. a, there's a landscape there. And there's something about saying that, no, 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 it's not Zeus, it's not Athena, you're just neurotic and depressed. That's so <laughs> depressing and kind of dehumanizing because it's like there's something wrong with you. You're not working right. But what it really is, is that you're embodying something that crosses the face and the heart of all humans, just momentarily versus perpetually. Sure, sure. No, and, and it's why I meant by saying the universe had been depopulated, so to speak, and and was now, is now, but atoms bumping up against other atoms and transforming as atoms. And um, where does that leave the human being? As recently as 1800, a person could still, a thoughtful person could still say, I know who I am. I might make mistakes in judgment from time to time, but by and large, I'm conscious. I know uh, what, what are the issues at stake when I make judgments, and I'm a rational person, and I'm, I'm an intentional person, and these are my values. At the same time, Hume in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Kant in uh, Russia we're undermining that and suggesting quite the contrary. We don't experience the world as it is. What we experience is our subjective rendering of it. Sensations hit our system. They're internalized, become perceptions. Our perceptions are organized according to our personality typologies, according to our psychology, according to our psychological history, according to our cultural purview, et cetera, et cetera, and is internalized as a subjective event. 
And this discovery, if you'll call it that, is, is what made modern deaf psychology and phenomenology necessary to try to then discern what are the limitations of our knowledge? What is it that we can correctly say about things? Um, what, what does it mean to be a conscious person? And of course, toward the end of the century, Freud and Jung appeared saying essentially, significant parts of our choices are coming out of the unconscious world in service to agendas over which we have no awareness per se. And it completely dethrones, in a way, the human mind and human rationality from its uh, privileged position. And in the 1980s, uh, other research indicated that often decisions are made in the unconscious before consciousness even knows a decision is necessary. Let's say you attend a baseball game and a fall ball is headed right towards you. You may not even be paying attention. Your system begins reacting before you even say to yourself, duck, or whatever you need to do. All of these things point toward, again, the human being being relocated is no longer the emperor of the universe, but as, as one animal who is trying to communicate with another animal and is subjected to all of the forces at work of which we can say we're only conscious a small part of any given day. Much of our behavior is on automatic pilot, and that's what creates our patterns and creates our stuck places. Yeah, I remember realizing for the first time that I was rationalizing a lot of my emotions. Like I would have, you know, somebody would say something to me and it would be annoying, or let's say, you know, mm -hmm. I, I would feel frustrated with them. And it it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized that often when that happened, I was actually upset about something completely different that had happened, say, earlier in the morning. And I know that sounds horribly naive to a lot of people <laughs> listening, that it took me so long to figure this out. But it it is very true that there are these forces that well up inside of us that are, in some sense, not part of our conscious waking reality. Mm -hmm. And so how does depth psychology address that in a way that, let's say, standard modern clinical psychology does not? Well, most of modern psychology is devoted to, shall we say, problem solving. And there are only a few sessions whose purpose is to zero in on the particular issue that the person has brought, you know, like trying to stop smoking or trying to do something else with their life or something in the relational patterns. In depth psychology, we're, we're really exploring where you understand your journey to be. What is it you need to be looking at in terms of the long-term perspective? What gives you a sense of purpose? What gives you a sense of meaning? What are the symptoms that are indicating the degree to which we get off track? For example, our feeling function. We don't choose our feelings. Our feelings are autonomous, qualitative responses by that psyche. I can choose to ignore my feelings, project them onto someone else. I can anesthetize them. I can bury them. But they're already expressing something in the psyche, registering an opinion. Um, secondly, energy systems. When we're doing what's right for us, the energy is there. We can mobilize energy in many different ways and have to on a daily basis. But if you keep doing it over a length of time, it invariably leads to depression or burnout. Again, when you're doing what's right for you, the energy is there to support you. Thirdly, we dream.
Big news, everyone. We have officially announced ticket sales for Demysticon 2024. This is our first scientific conference, and what we're going to be doing is we are bringing together our favorite podcast guests in Austin, Texas, April 7th and 8th of 2024. And we're going to have a slew of incredible speakers. For right now, we don't have everyone confirmed, but of the ones that we do have confirmed, we have our favorite scientist, Pierre-Marie Robitaille, we have ancient mythology scholar John F. White of the Craig and Ford YouTube channel. We have Ogi Ogas, consciousness researcher. We have Steve Keen, economist. And we have many more that are on deck that we will announce very, very soon. So check out the link in the description. And we hope to see you in Austin, Texas of 2024. I'm currently 83. If you reach 80 years old, statistics now tell us that six years of your 80 years were spent dreaming, not sleeping, but dreaming. It tells us that this, you know, nature doesn't waste energy. It's serving a function. If you stop and pay attention to what's going on in those dreams, and we do on analytic psychology, you begin to realize that they are the unfolding of our personal mythos, our, our personal story as seen by another center of knowing in us that's quite separate from consciousness. You don't create your dreams, and yet they come to you. Something in you is seeking to link up, to connect with you, and to communicate something. And it would make sense to then pay attention to that. Um, fourthly, we have psychopathology. When I'm uh, tracking, I have the, correctly, I, as seen by the psyche, I, I have that, again, internal support. When I don't, I can look at my anxiety states or my addictions or, or, or my depressions or whatever the form it might take. And then we have to dig into that to see what, it, what, it has, what has been in some way neglected in the conduct of one's life. And then fifthly, most of all, and most elusive is the question of meaning. When what you're doing is meaningful to you, you can put up with anything. You can go through all kinds of suffering if you have a sense of purpose in it. And if you don't have that, you can be successful in certain ways, but ultimately it's empty. It's like buying those automobiles, it's successfully buying all those automobiles, and yet the outcome remains the same, a chronic sense of emptiness and, and aloneness. And you realize that, that this is a treatment plan that the individual has worked out, but it's a treatment plan that's not working. So it's an open-ended question then to say, what is the psyche asking of me? Which is not a question we've ever been conditioned to, to address, but, but that's why we, we try to address that in analytic psychology. It seems like a cosmological issue to me in some sense. Like I feel like in the past, you know, we had this wonderful economist on the show a few weeks back, Michael Hudson, and he was studying ancient civilizations and in particular, what were the economic features of those civilizations that thrived as opposed to the ones that collapsed and, and didn't sustain themselves very long. One of the things he pointed out that was really interesting and relevant was that their leadership was deeply cosmologically motivated. They saw themselves as providing harmony between the people on earth and the gods above. That was a central role of the leadership in those civilizations. And what's really strange, and this might make an interesting segue into science, because I feel like in the 20th century was the first time that cosmology became a scientific enterprise. And the cosmology that science has delivered to us is one that's 
rather sterile and dull, right? Starts with a bang, ends with a big whimper or something, the heat death of the universe. And people are just looking around like, well, if it's all just gonna, you know, expand into nothing, who cares what I do in my life here? And this is just a very, very vapid and empty cosmology. And I just wonder if there's something sad that's happened in terms of handing off the reins of these cosmological enterprises to science is like is science really even the right place to be addressing cosmology that's a very good question because i i think if you're talking about strict cosmology of course it's a good place to have it but you're talking about the psychological effect of cosmology it's a different story altogether you know the word cosmos comes from the greek word that means order and its opposite is chaos is this an ordered universe if so, what produced the order? Who are the orderers? What are what is their will for us? And and those are the kinds of questions that rise out of that. And we all have at some level a need to have a story that helps us make sense of life. And if your story locates you in a time and space continuum where where you feel a sense of purpose and connection to the mysterious powers, th then you'll have a sense of meaning in your life, no matter what the external consequences are or suffering may be. Uh, in the modern era, I have no objection to modern science, which means after all, science means knowledge, you know, it's, well, why should we not pursue knowledge? But to realize that you can also come up with a story that doesn't link people. I happen to be impressed and amazed all the time with new astronomical discoveries. I find that extraordinarily uh, uh, intriguing to me. To me, that's part of the mystery. So I, I think if we understand that the what we were learning about the human body and about the uh, you know the distance between you know planets and so forth is somehow still purposeful and meaningful to us, that's one thing. But does it give us a story that links us to something? And the answer is, for most people, no. And, and we have a need for that story. And if, the, if we don't find it there, people are going to go looking for it elsewhere, as I mentioned, in the various isms that um, we've generated in, in modern life. I guess, you know, I teach astronomy and astrophysics at a university here. And I guess I'm, the more I learn about it, the, the less impressed I am with it. Because I feel like the concept of universe cannot be like what does universe mean it means one right it is the one song essentially it's what every it's everything right and if you ignore these psychological elements the the animating elements of life and you're just talking about rocks knocking around i think you're missing half half of the picture i guess that's what i'm trying to get at when i say that i don't know that physics the physical sciences are totally capable of dealing with cosmology which fundamentally in its inception was addressing the place of humans in the universe, our That's purpose, right? And I, and I would agree with that, as you expressed it just now. Sure, that, because it's, it's the information minus the story. And again, it's, people need a narrative to try to make sense of it. Where do I fit in? What's the larger purpose of my journey? Am I just here to breathe a certain number of times and then depart to, to you know, disintegrate? Um, if so, it's a pretty bleak universe. And that's the universe that postmodernism has basically presented for most people, which is why we have, you know, nationalism, materialism, hedonism, and narcissism, etc. 
And scientism. And scientism, yeah, which is essentially a naive belief in that, you see. But didn't we have all of these things all along, right? We have the story of Narcissus who looks into the pond for too long, marveling at his own reflection and suffers for it. We mm-hmm. have all these stories of the quintessentially human ways in which the gods fail, not because those mistakes have suddenly sprung up in us recently, but because they've always been with us. That's right. And I think that I run into people a lot that have this, they have this feeling that there was a better time. Like we were in the Bay Area just now and we have a lot of friends that are fairly well off. You know, they're, they're, they're doing creative work, they're construction people, architects, making their living. And over and over again, people were like, you know, it was, we should just go back to tribes of 200 humans. With no electricity. With no electricity. Yeah, like, let's just get rid of electricity. Mm-hmm. And that was, to me, the reflection of a belief that we have that there was once a better time to be human and that we have strayed from this garden in which we once lived where we didn't have any of these problems. And modernity has laid these problems upon us and look at us suffer, but there was a better time. But increasingly, I have the feeling that I think as far back as you go, all the way to the animal world, I think that we've always had these problems. Uh, No, I I agree. I fully agree. Uh, I think, again, that points to the fact that while we have greater creature comforts and physical safety than any time in human history, we still have this aching need to have a bigger picture, to have some understanding. Who am I? Where am I in the face of this? What's my life journey about? And then what's the big story? From whence come do we come and whither do we go? You know, mm-hmm. as Jung put it very simply, he said, we're, we're, we're a short pause between two great mysteries. Well, what are those mysteries? What are the stories we have of those mysteries? And most people today can't come up with anything. And so, I, I again, I think uh, when I talk about a story, I, I'm talking about some sort of set of images some sort of narrative that links you you know to the gods and i mean the four orders of mystery historically were first of all the transcendent order who are the gods and what is their will toward us secondly the mysteries of nature which we've been exploring and created science to explore on our behalf Uh, thirdly is the mystery of human relationship who is my tribe to whom do i belong who are my people where's my home and fourthly is the psychological mystery. And, and who am I? What is, what is my journey about as opposed to someone else's? Those stories haven't, those questions haven't changed. Um, the capacity of the culture to provide uh, satisfying answers to most people, of course, has waned significantly, which is why so many people will drift into the things we were talking about, such as addictions and materialism and so forth. It seems to me that that's at least somewhat a consequence of the falling apart of a central narrative. We live in a world where everyone can go and they can create their own culture on the basis of some small subset of stories that they watch. You are no longer under the sway of three media companies that present to you 10 hours of television every single day, and that's literally what everybody watches. Some people listen to the radio, but there's only five radio stations. This is even more extreme in a place like the Soviet Union, where I think that there was 
one radio station and one television station. Mm-hmm. And so you have a fracturing of people's stories. And as you have a fracturing of people's stories... And cosmologies. And co- uh, how so? Well, cosmology is just being your big... It's like the biggest story you can tell about your place in the universe and who you are. Don't you think that the cosmology is actually becoming even more centralized because everybody's like black holes, heat, death of the universe, big In the physics sense, yeah. I was just talking in the ancient sense. Yeah, like the ancient senses have have died, right? There's not really... It it almost seems naive. Like I was trying to find somebody who is contemporary, who is doing comparative mythology. But everybody who's doing comparative mythology was doing it in the 70s. There's like nobody around now who's starting as a young academic who is pushing in that direction. And so it seems like we've kind of even given up on this idea of a universal human nature that we are all pushing towards. And so the only thing that I can see is this progressive fracturing and tribalism and smaller and smaller continuities of what it means to be human that are kind of isolated from one another. Mm -hmm. And in in that framework, is there still a collective unconscious? Or does the collective unconscious have to come from a shared cultural experience? Well, when you use the term collective unconscious, if you use it in a union context, what he's referring to is that we share the same psychic reality and the same psychic structuring process as our ancestors. And and we can prove that by our dreams and the cultural forms that we invent. Um, When you talk about it in a general sense of where are these images coming from in the culture, you know, you're right. There's a fracturing of the story of, in our time. And when something fractured, people will grab hold of the nearest piece they can hold on to and, and often try to, you know, inflate that to, to become their personal story. I had a client who was remanded by a court and sent to AA as well as therapy. And she said all of this higher power talk was something that was very off-putting to her because she'd had bad experiences as a child in her religious affiliation. She said, one day I was sitting in a meeting against her will, mind you. Someone mentioned the higher power. And I said to myself, and this is the woman speaking, what is my higher power? And she said, I, the image of a bottle formed before my mind's eye. And she suddenly realized, she said, that? That's too small. And at that moment, she said, I got it. I was living a story that was too small. And from that moment on, her attitude toward going to AA and her attitude toward coming to therapy uh, changed entirely, where she realized she was spending her energy in one of those fragmentary stories. And by and large, this is what we have in our time, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. The mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The best are full of... um, the worst are full of passionate convic- convictions. Yeah, and I forget the rest of the line, but it's Yeats, you know, in, in 17. So it's an hour, it's 100, 105 years ago or whatever it is, 106 years ago. Now, he was, he was recognizing the, the loss of the center, you know, the mythological center, leading, of course, to the mass destructions of the Great War. So, you know, we, we, we live in a time of broken images, basically. And individuals will need to find those images which still speak to them and which still um, in some way link them to themselves and to others. But again, those four questions that um, haunt humankind, 
haven't gone away, they're still with us. And um, we, we tend not to have a, a tribal source for our images. We look to popular culture and, and, you know, good luck with that. What was the image that your client ended up replacing the bottle with? I think with the image of, uh, of health, probably for her. Hmm. Realize, and by health, I meant her, the health of her spirit as well as the body. That there was something worthwhile to protect there. There was something to nurture there. Um, she had been here to, there too for so caught up in the experience of grief and disappointment in life that she was, you know, treating herself. She was medicating herself is what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And when she was not able to, to medicate anymore and, and was working through this piece by piece, she gained a greater sense of uh, herself as, as a more nearly whole person. And that that became a, a very desirable um, purpose for her journey at that point. So we worked together for, for about two years, I would say. And, and, and I think she, she left a quite changed person. Yeah, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this, but it reminds me of the ancient Greek uh, god, like almost praying to the image of Asclepius. Is it Asclepius? Asclepius. Asclepius? I think. Asclepius, the... Uh, you know, from which we get the the snakes on the side of the airplane and everything, or the side of the ambulance, I'm sorry, <laughs> side of the airplane. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, and um, he was the first one to provide a sanctuary for caregivers, too, at, at Epidaurus. So, uh, by, by tradition, and he realized that people who are in caregiving position uh, also need treatments as well <laughs> they also need uh you know the care and feeding of the soul also because they they burn out and they they suffer in the process and so um and and the serpents of course are there because the the serpent here's a good example of a mythological motif what's the serpent doing on the medical insignia well the the serpent in the classical imagination was the only animal whose entire body was in contact with the great mother earth you know the the great mother's the healer not not us but Mm. the great heals nature heals and and also the serpent stayed within the recesses of the great mother so it was thought that the serpents knew the secrets of the great mother in addition and this was the clincher every year they would shed their skin which was a primal symbol of death and rebirth of renewal so you could see why the serpent, something we tend to be afraid of, for them was a uh, link to the mystery that informs the human condition. And living in harmony with that mystery is, is the key. You said before very well, and I think appropriately, the chief function of the rulers of any particular group was to live in harmony with the gods. And when you don't, <laughs> You know, you might sacrifice your rulers as a result, because in a certain way, the we would say today, what we call neurosis, which is an ugly term we need to change, is is really where we're separated from our own nature, and we get separated pretty early. You know, we're tiny when we're toddlers, we're relatively powerless we have to adapt to the world around us just to function stay out of harm's way get our needs met as best we can 
And then flash forward a few decades and you realize the stories of that child, the understandings of that child. Just recently I was speaking by way of Zoom in, in Minneapolis and I said, how do you really feel just to, to recollect that an eight-year-old just made a major decision in your life? You wouldn't dream of turning your automobile over to an eight-year-old, but we turn our life over to that child all the time because we have certain stories about, can I trust you? Do I need to distrust you? Do I need to keep my distance? Do I need to keep my mouth shut? Because if I open it, I, I get in harm's way. Or do I need to rush in there and try to mollify you? Do I need to fix something in my environment? Those are the kinds of questions that are going on in every child's mind. If not consciously, it's there reflexively. And so we tend to get locked into those stories. Um, and they can play out for decades over our lives. And the patterns of our lives, particularly those that you can, as an adult judge that are counterproductive, often arise out of the replication of those stories, our servitude to them. So I mentioned before public speaking, which is usually considered the, the chief fear of the public. And, and what's that about? Well, who among us is not sensitive to what people think about us? Who among us has not at some point had some embarrassing experience, experience where we, we spoke and someone laughed at us or someone chastised us? And, and those experiences get very deeply buried within us and again show up in later engagements with life. And yeah, sometimes we can, you know, overcome them. As you put it, we don't solve those problems, but we can outgrow them. But we need to know, first of all, that's where they're coming from. And if I know that, then I can begin to take certain steps toward that. Uh, just recently, I was talking with someone who had to do a major presentation before a city council in another major city and was thinking back on all the inadequacies of his childhood and saying, how could I possibly be doing this in this setting? And I said, look, here is all of this achievement that you've accomplished. And why is it you were invited to give this report? And just laid out all of the facts about this person's life to somehow balance to a degree the archaic story that was saying, you don't, you don't belong here. Don't, don't go out there. You know, you, you're, you're not good enough to do that. And that was the child's story. And it was the child's story that was beating him up. And this is a person who was in his 60s when he was experiencing that. So it was really a collision of two stories. At the same time, and of course, we were wanting to tilt the balance in the direction of the more empowering story of uh, his contemporary capacities. Do you think that this can be rewritten on the global level as we move forward as a civilization, as a global civilization, or does it have to be developed very locally? Is this something that people will have to, like, I just don't see a, a clear path forward in terms of getting out of our addiction to all these isms as a global culture and and not really having this this primal i mean obviously this the stories that come back from shame sh, uh, shamanic practices right people have had incredible success with their addictions and things like this but overall as a society we're still married to you know medicines and doctors and dentists and isms and the apple store and everything else right is, is there a way forward in the grand sense or is this something that people have to just take on individually 
Well, I, I wish I had a better answer to that question. I suspect it has to do mostly with the work that individuals do. As Jung pointed out, he said, the human condition hangs by a narrow thread, and that's the consciousness of the individual. I've spent the last nearing 60 years of my life uh, in public education, which has been, I don't want to sound grandiose about that. I'm, I'm privileged to have had the opportunity to be a teacher, but that's what I've been doing for all these years, is, is trying to share insights, information from the past, from the present, in the hope that it empowers individuals, encourages them to follow their own inner lights, and to undertake a journey. If you don't find satisfying stories in your culture, and more and more people don't, then you're on your own to some degree, and you have to sort of sort through and to do a discernment process. You know, there are many things from the past that are still valuable for us, if, if in fact they still speak to you. If they don't, move on. If they do, embrace them and carry them with them. Put them in your, your psychic knapsack and carry it with you. But, you know, the chances are you're going to be drawing your information and your insights and, and your narrative uh, fragments from so many different traditions, which frankly is wonderful because we, we do have worldwide traditions to draw from at this point in a way that historically people who were isolated in one tribe or another had no thought of the others out there except the fear of invasions and so forth. But, uh, you know, we, we can learn an enormous amount from other traditions. And uh, I've been impressed, for example, how many people, even those who are devout believers in religions X, Y, and Z, are drawing insights from contemporary Buddhism, for example which has been a, a transplantation from the East to the West. And there are some good reasons why that is, um, you know, happening, why it's helpful for people. So I, I think that's a good example of the eclecticism that's possible now for individuals that wouldn't have been in the past. Yeah, I guess we just, we live in an increasingly administrative era where these large institutions are, dictating a lot of the cultural landscape in terms of what we see, you know, ads are a part of every single piece of media, you know, they're going to put ads on this at YouTube, let's say, whether we like it or not, right? They're, they're all, there's ads everywhere. There's a commercial culture. And it seems like you have to be willing to look elsewhere. Like you have to be able to turn away from that in order to even explore some of these ideas. And so there's an element of personal responsibility that seems inherent. Like there's, there's no way you can expect as maybe 5,000 years ago in Sumeria for the state to be actually negotiating your cosmology for you. I just, I personally just don't see a way to that happening at any time in the future. I don't think you want it to happen. I don't think you want your state navigating your cosmology for you because I'm a big believer in the idea that we are where we are because we made decisions to arrive here. And so if you were to go back to Sumeria and then play hit play again and start over, you'd end up back here again because at each moment in the past, people made the best decision that was available to them. And so we are here now because we have realized that the divine mandate of rulers is kind of a false flag. It's a golden idol. And the responsibility that we have is inside of ourselves to find what fits. But I think that what you're really right about is that the the content that is provided for us is produced by these massive machines. There's not the... Uh, it's it's hard to find people that are independent individual creators that are not 
processed through the mill that produces whatever's supposed to be mainstream culture. And I think that that's what people really struggle with. It's commercial culture, right? People want to be commercially successful. Yeah. One way to summarize that is to say that the task of meaning has shifted from the tribal level to the shoulders of the individual, by and large. Some people resist that because it is such an awesome responsibility. It's an accountability that is um, too demanding for some. And they all, they'll stay within the group at any cost. But more and more individuals realize they have an accountability for their journey. If, if their journey is going to be meaningful, then it falls to them to figure out how to behave and what to do with that life. And uh, so I think I wouldn't want to romanticize the past in any way, but to say, all right, the burden that's come to you is a gift and it's, an, it's a responsibility. And it's what defines the modern. Who are you? What is your journey about? What are the points of reference that make sense that improve the quality of your relationships to nature and to yourself and to those whom you love and so forth? And, and what, are the, what are the things that distract you from that? And, and that's our responsibility. And that in the long run is the, the nature of the postmodern world. And that is each of us is accountable and each of us responsible for the story that we're living. And if you don't like your story, you better start looking for one that speaks to you more more profoundly. I am going to have to stop now. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. It's it's so many fascinating questions here about addiction and the way that culture of individual responsibility folds into that and the way that there's this big push against individual responsibility. But I know you have to go. Hopefully we, we have the chance to talk again. Right. Best to you both thank you so much thanks Jim have a great afternoon thank you you too bye Bye. everybody